The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Before we open God's Word this morning, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, thank you for your Word that it is refreshing to our soul. It is light. It is life. Father, as we study these things, may we be encouraged. May our spiritual uh, strength become more vibrant. May we gain a greater appreciation for your plans and purposes and history and your love and care for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, and we're discussing one of my favorite subjects, what Paul refers to in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, as the blessed hope. The blessed hope for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for His church. This is known as the rapture. We're going to discuss that in relationship to the tenth verse in this chapter, because this is one of the uh, most important verses in relation to the rapture. It's not specifically a rapture passage per se, as we'll see, but it does bring to bear uh, a host of doctrines in the Scripture related to God's plan for the church and for the future. So let's open our Bibles there and just do a bit of review as we look at this at this short evaluation report for the church in Philadelphia. As we've seen in each of these evaluation reports, they begin with a commission, that is an address, which opens the letter. This is addressed to the angel, that is the heavenly witness, who is the court reporter recording judgments and blessings, the evaluations of the Lord Jesus Christ for each of these congregations. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write. And then there is a reference to the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, a citation referencing specific attributes of Jesus Christ. And we read that this says, These things says he who is holy, he who is true. The emphasis here is on Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, he who has the key of David. And it also emphasizes the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only one who has the key, the only one who provides access to the kingdom of God, the only one who provides salvation. And then there is a a commendation, a praise for spiritual advance. This is the subject of verse 3. So let's, uh, verse 8, excuse me. Here is a map, just so you have uh, in your mind an understanding of the location of the church at Philadelphia. The seven evaluation reports in Revelation 2 and 3 began with uh, the church in Ephesus and then Smyrna, then up to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and now Philadelphia. We have one more to go in chapter 3, and then we will be out of the section that deals with the present age. Beginning in chapter 4, we start dealing with the events that uh, come in the future tribulation period. Revelation 3, 7, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write these things, says, He who is holy, he who is true, a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is the Lord Jesus Christ 
who is speaking and addressing the local church at Philadelphia. By application, we see that these same principles that are part of that evaluation report are part of the future evaluation report for our congregation and for us as individual believers. He is referred to as the one who has the key of David, the one who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Then verse verse 8 says, I know your works, a reference to Jesus Christ's exhaustive and comprehensive knowledge of every one of us and the deeds of every church, both good and bad. Then there was this parenthetical uh, exclamation. He says, see before you, see I've set before you an open door. No one can shut it, for you have, and, and that's the end of it. No one can shut it, and this is an indi- uh, just a reference to the evangelistic opportunities that the Lord Jesus Christ provided for that congregation. The main evaluation says, I know your works, that you have a little strength or little influence. You're small, you're in number. There's little political power or prestige in your numbers. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Three things form the the, uh, commendation. They have little power. They have kept his word. They have been obedient despite external persecutions. And they have not denied his name. Then in uh, verse 9, he emphasizes the fact that Christ will vindicate them just as he will vindicate us before our enemies, before those who persecute us. And in verse 9 we read, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. And we saw that this refers to uh, Jewish unbelievers that were particularly hostile and uh, uh, virulent in their opposition to the Christians in Philadelphia. These were the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not. We saw that Romans talks about the fact that the true Jew, the true Israelite, is the one who is not only a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but is also a one who has accepted Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. So they, these opposers are Jews who they claim to be Jews, but they are not, but lie, he says. Indeed, he says, I will make them come and worship before your feet. This is that vindication that was promised, that they would indeed reverse their view of these uh, of the Christians there, and that these Jews who were hostile and antagonistic would indeed come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Then as we concluded last time, we saw that there is a very important uh, grammatical and exegetical uh, issue that has to be addressed in order to understand the message of these, next, these two verses, of verse 9 and verse 10, and how they connect to one another. And I pointed out that in almost every English translation that we have today, it follows the punctuation that was first uh, accepted in the King James Version. It's been perpetuated down through, the, down through the years. Actually, it's based on the versification of a man named Robert Stevens, who is the one who first inserted verses in the Greek New Testament in the middle of the 1500s, somewhere around the 1540s, as he was riding horseback from Lyon, France, to Paris. And I think he horse-stepped in a few potholes along the way, and he missed the verse break. And this possibly could be uh, one of those. And I put this up on the board here so we can see what we're talking about. 
Verse 10, as it reads in most of your translations, begins with what is in the Greek a hadi clause, what we translate as a as the word because. And it says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, here's a slide that gets us into this situation. The way it's normally punctuated in your King James or New American Standard or whatever you're using is verse 9 ends with a period. Verse 10 then would begin with a new sentence beginning with the word because. Now, the Greek word hati can indicate because, introducing a causal statement, explaining a reason or the cause behind a statement, uh, another statement in your, in your independent clause. Uh, it can be a softer form of that, which would be the word for, or it can be an explanation or what's called epexegetical uh, word that. It's indicating uh, something that is being done. We see a usage of that uh, previously in uh, verse uh, 8. And if you have a New American Standard, it probably makes it more clear where the Lord says, I know your works, that you have a little strength. That's that same word, hati. It's explaining the content of works. It's further uh, elucidating on that concept. So that's what that third use is. That's not what's in view here in verse 10. Now here are the options. Option one is what you have in your translation, that the verse ends in verse 9 with a period, and the Verse 10 begins with a causal statement that is then dependent on the following independent clause. In other words, the because you have kept my command to persevere uh, explains the I also will keep you from the hour of trial. In other words, I will keep you from the hour of trial. This promise is then explained as being based upon or the cause for that is their perseverance. That has problems theologically, but that's not the main reason we look at something like this. In order to understand the Scripture, we have to understand the grammar first, and our theology should always flow from that. I pointed out last time at the conclusion that actually in terms of usage, a a causal clause beginning with hati usually follows a main clause, an independent clause, rather than preceding the clause. So proper punctuation would take the causal clause and connect it to verse 9, not to verse 10. Therefore, this should read, Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. In other words, this is a promise from the Lord Jesus Christ that he will vindicate this church. He will vindicate them before the enemies who are persecuting them as they go through this uh, period of testing in their historical time period. And because they have kept my word and because they have not denied my name, because they have kept the command to persevere, then Jesus Christ is going to then reverse the testing that they're going through, and those who have opposed them, many of them will come to accept Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. 
This means that verse 10 should be understood as a separate statement, an additional statement, something that goes beyond what he has already said, that I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, last time I pointed out a couple of rules of grammar, just so you are familiar with this. First of all, when because begins the sentence, or when that hati begins a sentence, it states the cause of the following clause. Okay, when there are a few rare times in the Greek Greek grammar when the because statements begins the sentence, but it's extremely unusual. When it does, it modifies the following uh, independent clause. Second principle: when because follows a, cl- a comma, it links to the previous clause. That's what I've already indicated. The verse 9 should end with a comma, and the because should modify verse 9, not verse 10. And then this gives you some data on the use of this particular kind of grammatical construction. The least common use of because at the beginning of a sentence is the least common use of because begins the sentence. This is called uh, the suspensive use of hati. That's the technical language. What we realize is out of about 450 uses of the causal hati, grammarians recognize only 12 in the New Testament as suspensive. That's a shade more than 2% of all uses. So you have to have strong contextual grammatical reasons to punctuate the sentence like it's punctuated in verse 9 and verse 10. And it doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit the pattern. You should go with the normative use unless there is compelling reason within the context to do otherwise, and we don't have that. So verse 10, where we are this morning, should read as an independent statement, I also, something in addition, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. And just an additional note, the Greek word kai ego, which is and I, which begins this sentence, is used almost exclusively to begin a new sentence as opposed to the continuation of a sentence that's already there. So it always begins a new sentence. So this further substantiates this grammatical point. Now, the reason I make this point is because we have to properly punctuate and properly understand our sentence structure before we can properly interpret a passage, and then uh, before we can properly apply it, we have to understand the the proper uh, interpretation. What we have here is a general promise that is being applied to this local congregation. As we'll see when we go through our study, that in 1 Thessalonians we have this same general promise applied to the Thessalonians, and that is a promise from the Lord Jesus Christ that they will be kept from the wrath to come, which is a term used in Thessalonians to refer to the future period known as the tribulation, a seven-year period that is oriented to divine discipline and judgment oriented to Israel, the last seven years of the period of time designated for Israel. And so we have to get into uh, some vocabulary introduction in just a minute. As we look at this verse, in order to understand it, we have to focus on three key phrases. First of all, The promise is, I will keep you from. What does that mean? And that is the 
interpretive crux of this whole passage. What is Jesus saying when he says, I will keep you from? What exactly does that mean? Does that mean he will protect us in the midst of something? Or that he will keep us outside of something where it's never involved? There's tremendous debate about that particular uh, point. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. So I will keep you is the first thing that we need to understand. Second, we need to understand the phrase, the hour of trial. What exactly uh, does that refer to? And then third, this last phrase, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now, let's get a little background. This first phrase, keep you from, is based on the Greek word tereo and the preposition ek. Now, this is a very well-known uh, debate and issue that uh, is written about in terms of the relationship of this passage to understanding uh, the pre-tribulation rapture. Does the rapture come before the tribulation, or does the rapture come after the tribulation? What is the relationship, in other words, of the church to the tribulation period? So as we go through this, we have to analyze four things. First of all, what does this verb tereo mean exactly? Second, what does the preposition ek mean, which is very important? And then third, we have to understand what does it mean when these two are combined? Because often it's not just the individual words of Scripture that are important, but it's how they are used in combination with other words, whereas one word may have one nuance or meaning alone, Frequently, when it is combined with other words, it picks up another nuance or another uh, significance. And then we'll look at some key uh, parallel passages as we come to a tremendous understanding of how Jesus Christ is promising not only the Philadelphian church that they won't go through the tribulation period, but this is a promise for us that we will all, all believers in the church age, will be kept outside of the period known as the tribulation. Okay, let's get a prophetic panorama so we understand some of the basic basic vocabulary we're going to use. We're now in the church age. Uh, the church age is going to end with the coming of Jesus Christ in the clouds for his church. We don't know when that will come. No other prophecy is to be fulfilled or is necessary to be fulfilled before Jesus Christ returns for the church. That's why this is our blessed hope. That's why we're excited. We're looking forward to the future return of Jesus Christ. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We're not looking for the rise of the ten-nation uh, confederacy in Europe. We're not looking for the uh, rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Those things may or may not uh, have some fulfillment prior to the rapture. The next prophetic event is the rapture. We are looking forward to His coming for us to take us to be with Him. Following the rapture, not immediately following, most people believe there is some uh, transition period, whether it's short or long, we're not sure, but 
sometime after the rapture, a seven-year period of tribulation will come upon the earth. This is referred to in the Old Testament as the time of Jacob's trouble, indicating that its emphasis is on Israel. In Daniel chapter 9, we're told that this is the 70th week in a period of time that God had designated for Israel. Their, their chronology stopped when they cut off the Messiah in A.D. 33, and there's been a, we've been on hold. God punched the pause button for Israel's uh, prophetic timetable, and once a future event occurs when the Antichrist is on the scene and he enters into a covenant or a peace treaty with Israel, that will begin the seven-year tribulation period. During that time, we are in heaven where we are being evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. This will be followed by the marriage of the Lamb, and then Jesus Christ will return with us at the second coming. This ends the tribulation period, and then Jesus Christ establishes his messianic kingdom on the earth. That just gives you the basic panorama. So as we begin to talk in a little more detail about the rapture, about the tribulation, you have an understanding of, of the fundamental vocabulary here. There are four different views. Actually, you could say there are five, but I'm only going to uh, categorize them as four different views of the timing of the rapture of the church. The view that we hold here, that I believe is the most exegetically defensible, is the view called the pre-tribulation rapture. That is the view that the rapture of the church, when the church is taken to be with the Lord Jesus Christ in the clouds and then taken to heaven, occurs before the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation, begins. Another view is the view that there is a partial rapture. Not too many people hold this view, but some do, and that view holds that spiritual Christians, those who are in fellowship, those who are growing, those who are advancing, get raptured before the tribulation, and those who are carnal at the time of Christ's uh, coming for the church have to go through the tribulation period. So only the faithful, dedicated Christians are raptured at the uh, before the tribulation, and the, the rest get to go through it. That's called the partial rapture view. Another view is the mid-tribulation rapture view. This is the view that all believers go through the first three and a half years, and at the midpoint of the tribulation, they are taken to be with the Lord in heaven. A variation of that's come up in the last few years called the pre-wrath rapture, which some of us refer to as the three-quarter uh, tribulation view. <laughs> you know, things always should keep keeps you on your toes trying to deal with all these different views. And then there's the post-trib view, which is that all church-age believers go through the tribulation and all believers are taken to be with the Lord in the clouds at the end of the tribulation, at the end of those seven years. Okay, let's begin to look at our passage this morning. As we look at this passage in verse 10, we read, I also will keep you from the hour of trial. Now, the question here is the meaning of keep you from. It is the Greek verb tereo, as I pointed out already. Often this word is translated to keep in the sense of being obedient. We've seen that already in, even in this verse, because you have kept my command to persevere. It's the sense of obedience, and that is this same word. But in this, this sentence, 
it is used with a different sense. And that sense is that of to protect, to reserve, or to deliver. That is probably the uh, best translation, as we'll see. I also will deliver you from the hour of testing. The context of 310 indicates uh, preservation or protection since it is this time of testing, this time of tribulation that we have already uh, discussed. Now, in order to understand tereo, we have to understand the force of that preposition that comes after it. We are delivered from something. We are preserved or protected from something. Now, what exactly does that preposition imply? This is where there's a lot of debate because it can have one of two senses. The first sense is what I have diagrammed on the left, and that is that you're taken out from something. For example, you may use the preposition ek to say that you are going out from the church. And so you would be in the church, and then you would be leaving the church, and it implies that there is a a previous time when you were within or inside the church building. Then you have a second sense in which ek is used of someone who is outside of something, and they never, ever are inside it. They are outside, and they are kept from it so that they are never inside it. This is the sense that we have in this particular passage, not the first, and this is understood through uh, not only context but comparison with other scripture. And so I want to give you an understanding of some of these other scriptures. Now, the predominant meaning that we find for the preposition ek is to be in a position outside of its object with no thought of prior existence within the object or of emergence from the object. But like I said, there are some cases, and we'll see one in a key passage, where you are inside, but predominantly it is outside the object with no thought of being in it or emerging from within. This is very important to understand this passage. Now here's a quote from the Iliad. Thereafter will we hold ourselves aloof from the fight Beyond the range, see I've italicized the translation of Ek there, beyond the range of missiles. They never were in the range of missiles. They were always outside the range of the missiles. A quote from Psalm 21-23, which is much closer to our usage in Revelation 3.10. There we read, the one who guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from trouble. This doesn't mean that he's first in trouble and then he gets out of trouble, although that's true for some of us. But unfortunately, once you commit a sin of the tongue, that word gets out of your mouth. It's hard to bring it back in. The one who guards his mouth and tongue keeps, and this is the Greek word dia tereo. Remember the word we're looking at in Revelation 3.10 is tereo. This is a compound form of it, so it's very close in meaning to what we have. This is the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. The one who guards his mouth and soul keeps, uh, mouth and tongue keeps his soul from ek, from trouble. He never enters in to trouble, so he's never within that sphere of trouble. He is always outside of it. Then we'll look at another example in the Psalms, Psalm 59, 
verses 1 and 2. There the psalmist is calling upon God to deliver him. And three times in two verses he uses a verb that is synonymous to keeping from, and plus that preposition ek. He says, deliver me from my enemies. There's no implication here that he's ever been under the control of his enemies, but he doesn't want to be captured or controlled by those enemies. Defend me from those who rise up against me. And again in verse 2, deliver me from the workers of iniquity. In each of these instances, you have a structure that indicates that the person is never in the control of the enemies. He's never been captured. He's never dominated by the enemies, but he doesn't want to come into that sphere where he is controlled by those enemies. Now that gives us an understanding of how this word group is used in the Septuagint Greek. But we also have some important illustrations in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 15, as the disciples, the apostles, are summarizing their conclusions at the Jerusalem conference, they say, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So here we have again, not tereoek, which is what we have in Revelation 3.10, but we have a compound form of tereo, diotereo, which is what we saw in the Proverbs passage. And it is not saying that they are in these things, but they are to stay outside of them with no indication of ever being inside of them. That's Acts 15, 28, 29. Then let's go to a couple of passages in John. We're studying uh, John's writings in Revelation. So we'll look at John 12, 27. John 12, 27, the Lord is looking forward. He's anticipating his passion, his suffering. He's not there yet. Remember, John 12 comes before John 13. John 13 is a celebration of the Passover meal, the Last Supper, with his disciples, followed by the upper room discourse. So he has not yet entered into that period of his passion. He hasn't gone to uh, Gethsemane yet. He hasn't been arrested yet. He hasn't been flogged yet. He's not yet on the cross. He is simply anticipating it. He knows it is around the corner. And he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me or deliver me. Uh, synonym for tereo. Uh, save me from this hour. See, it's very similar to our passage where believers are told that we will be kept from the hour of testing. Now, in this passage, we see that he is kept from the hour. He hasn't entered it yet. He hasn't gone through it yet. He is outside of it, and he is praying that he does not enter into it. Then we come to our key parallel passage, John seventeen fifteen. This is in the Lord's high priestly prayer for the church. And it is important to understand the parallel here. He says, he's praying to the Father and he says, I do not pray that you should take them, that is, take the disciples out of the world, but that you should keep them, and there's our word, the exact same phrase we have in Revelation 3.10, but that you should take them 
uh, that you should keep them from the evil one. Now, in the first clause, he says, I pray that you should take, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. He uses the verb iro here, which means to take up, to lift up, or to raise. And he's praying in the negative that these disciples would not be taken out of or removed from the world. Now, in this phrase, where you have iro in combination with ek, you have what I pointed out earlier, an example of being inside the circle and not being taken out of the circle. So that is our, our one sense here, but it's based upon that uh, <coughs> use of that word iro. So it's the combination phrase that is important there. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should... Uh, keep them from the evil one. Tereoek. And this is the idea that, uh, that he is praying that believers would not enter into the sphere of control from Satan. He is not saying that they're in the sphere of control of Satan and they need to be protected while they're there. He is saying that the, the Lord, the, that God should protect them from entering into that sphere completely. Again, it is a, a comfort to realize that the Lord Jesus Christ is praying for our protection in times of testing and trials as we go through this life. That's the same thing that he's praying for or that he has said is happening with the Philadelphian believers, that they are going through testing right now, but in a broader picture, there's a greater, more intense period of suffering coming. And even though I have provided for you in this testing and persecution, you will be kept out of, you will never go into that future time of great uh, testing and persecution. Charles Ryrie says, regarding the time frame here, the hour of testing, he says that it's impossible to conceive of being in a location where something is happening and being exempt from the time of the happening. The next clause that we look at relates to this. John says, I also will keep you from the hour of trial. He's not saying I'm going to keep you from the testing. See, we go through testing. He's saying I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. It's the time period of the trial that we are kept out of, not testing per se. See, you often, when you talk to some people, they say, well, you Christians who believe in the rapture, you just believe that, uh, that God doesn't want you to go through testing or tribulation. Well, that's just a complete misrepresentation. All believers are going to go through testing and, and tribulation in this life. But we're talking about a particular period of intense testing and tribulation known as the Great Tribulation. So as Dr. Ryrie points out, it's impossible to conceive of being in the location where something is happening and being exempt from the time of the happening. In other words, you ha if you're exempt from the time of the happening, you're not going to go through that event. So this is not a passage that is talking about the rapture per se, but it relates because it tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to keep us from going into that period of time, that period of testing. And that period of testing is further defined in the next clause as that which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. 
And this phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, becomes a technical term in the book of Revelation for unbelievers during the time of the tribulation. Revelation 3.10, we're kept from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. It comes upon everyone who is an earth dweller. And the word translated in the New King James shall come upon is actually a present participle of a Greek verb, mellow, which means about to come. Uh, so that's a poor translation. It's not an, an indicative which shall come. It indicates that this is something that is about to come. It could happen at any moment. And so one of the doctrines that undergirds our understanding of this passage is the doctrine of the imminency of Christ's return. That's spelled I-M-M-I, not I-M-M-A. These are different words. Imminency means that Jesus Christ can come at any moment. There is nothing that has to happen between now and the time Jesus returns for the church. He can come at any moment. He could come today. He could come tonight. In Paul's time, he expected him to come during his lifetime. We have to always be ready. Now, as we've gone through this verse, we've introduced some really important uh, doctrines that we have to understand. One is what I've just referred to, the doctrine of the imminency of Christ, which undergirds our whole understanding of God's future plan. Another is this doctrine of the rapture. What is taught of the rapture? How do we know about the rapture? What we know here is simply what Christ will do. He will keep us from the hour of testing. But it doesn't tell us how he does it. That's what the doctrine of the rapture uh, explains. So next time we'll come back and we'll look at the doctrine of imminency, which is something that is often misunderstood, and we'll have to understand that and go through it. And then we'll look at what is taught about the rapture, especially in First Thessalonians. This will serve also as an introduction and preparation for us as we are about to complete our study of Revelation 4, and then we, uh, Revelation 3 rather, and then we jump. There's a sort of a gap there between the end of 3 and 4, and the beginning of 4 we see that the rapture has already occurred. So we're setting ourselves up, providing an introduction to the section of Revelation from chapter 4 to 19, which deals with future events. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we are indeed grateful that you are a God who cares about us. You are a God who is involved in, in our lives. You understand our heartaches, the difficulties we go through. You understand the, the opposition we face, the persecution that many believers have faced down through the ages. And just as you have, you will vindicate all of us from these unjust uh, charges and opposition, you will also protect us from that ultimate intense discipline and testing that will come upon the earth. This is just another manifestation of your wonderful grace toward us. And as church age believers, we look forward to and anticipate and long for that blessed hope that Jesus Christ is soon coming for us, that it could be at any moment. Now, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain, that they would take this opportunity to put their faith alone in Christ alone. The instant you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, God the Father in his omniscience knows what you have trusted for salvation. At that instant, you are justified, you are regenerated, you have eternal life which can never 
be taken from you. This is your opportunity to make your salvation sure and certain by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with the truths that we have studied today, your comfort, your care, and the fact that you are going to uh, soon come for us. You are going to uh, come and take us to be with you, and we look forward to that. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.